You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, January 12th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Wild Birds Unlimited, locally owned nature and gift store, offering all things birds, feeding supplies, and nature-inspired gifts. Phone orders and curbside service available. Bringing people and nature together through birds. Wild Birds Unlimited, Neal Street, Grass Valley. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery speaks with Alan Stoller about the lack of rain this winter. We bring you part of Governor Gavin Newsom's press conference from yesterday regarding the COVID pandemic. The Public News Service reports that the first female federal prisoner facing execution in 68 years has been granted a stay by a federal court in Indiana. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Food Sleuth. And at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. In an extraordinary and unusual move, the country's top military leaders have signed a joint statement harshly condemning last week's riot at the U.S. Capitol. More from NPR's Greg Myrie. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Army General Mark Milley, and the other members say the January 6th riot was a, quote, direct assault on the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, and our constitutional process. Milley and other senior military leaders have stated repeatedly that they do not want the armed forces involved in U.S. politics. But the violence has prompted them to take a more public position. The statement added that freedom of speech does not give anyone the right to resort to violence, sedition, and insurrection. There was no mention of President Trump, but the statement by the Joint Chiefs stated that President-elect Joe Biden would become commander-in-chief on January 20th. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. As President Trump faces what is likely to be his second impeachment by the House this week, lawmakers are moving to remove the president even faster. They've now started debate on the topic of whether to attempt to remove Trump from office using the 25th Amendment, calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke his constitutional authority to carry that out. Although that's not likely to happen, there is growing disenfranchisement from Trump by members of his own party. That includes the chair of the House Republican Conference, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. An impeachment vote in the House is expected tomorrow. Around the country, officials and law enforcement personnel are taking steps to tighten security at state capitol buildings. NPR's Greg Allen reports it follows a warning by the FBI that armed protests are being planned at all 50 state capitals. In many states, legislatures are convening new sessions this week with tighter security in place. In Olympia, Washington, National Guard troops were on hand as two protesters were arrested Monday for trying to enter the State House grounds. Michigan has banned openly carrying firearms in the Capitol there, a scene of armed protests through last spring. Following last week's violence in Washington, D.C., Representative Geraldine Thompson of Florida says security is a concern. We are now even more um, on alert, if, if, if that's the best word, for our safety as lawmakers. In Atlanta, an eight-foot security fence is now being erected around the Georgia Capitol. 
Greg Allen, NPR News. All air passengers entering the U.S. will now be required to provide a negative coronavirus test, according to an expanded travel requirement issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Starting January 26, everyone who boards an international flight bound for the U.S. must show they've tested negative for the virus in the three days before they get on the plane. Airlines are responsible for checking each passenger's results. While vetting passengers won't catch every infection, the CDC says it's a necessary step to slow the spread of the virus in the U.S. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 60 points today. The Nasdaq rose 36 points. This is NPR. On a phone call today with the nation's governors to discuss the coronavirus, Vice President Mike Pence noted that, quote, our time is coming to an end and a new administration is about to take over. Pence saying the current administration is working diligently with President-elect Joe Biden's team and promising a seamless transition. Pence said the objective will be to ensure there is no interruption in efforts to, quote, put the health of the American people first. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says it is investigating after a manatee was spotted in Florida with the word Trump written into algae on its back. Amy Green of member station WMFE in Orlando has the story. The Fish and Wildlife Service says it does not appear the manatee was seriously injured. The animal reportedly was spotted Sunday in the headwaters of the Homosassa River in northwest Florida. Manatees are protected under the Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act. Their harassment is a federal crime, punishable by a $50,000 fine and up to one year in prison. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission also is investigating. Meanwhile, the nonprofit Center for Biological Diversity is offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to a conviction in the case. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Orlando. General Motors is forming a new business unit to tap the market for delivery vehicles and equipment powered by electricity. New venture is called Bright Drop, and its first product will be a battery-powered wheeled pallet that will take goods from warehouses to trucks and from trucks to destinations. GM also plans to roll out a delivery van. The EP1 pallet will go on sale early this year, with EV600 expected on the roads late next year. This is NPR. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, tonight in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area will be mostly cloudy with a low around 42. Wednesday will be mostly sunny with a high near 58 and clear skies overnight with a low around 40. In Sacramento tonight, there will be patchy fog after 10 p.m., otherwise mostly cloudy skies with a low around 45. Wednesday will start out mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming sunny with a high near 64 and overnight lows around 43 with mostly clear skies. In Truckee tonight, skies will be mostly cloudy with a low around 30. Wednesday will be partly sunny with a high near 48 and partly cloudy skies overnight with a low around 24. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be mostly cloudy with a low around 45. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 63 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 42. I'm speaking with Al Stoller and uh, well, welcome Al. We don't get a chance to talk as much as we used to, but, you know, if we were up in the same floor that we normally are, the first thing we would say to each other or that I'd say to you is, where's the rain? So, Al, where's the rain? <laughs> no kidding. This is wintertime uh, Mediterranean climate, which is very unusual around the world. Only a few parts of the world 
have the same climate we do, which means a dry summer and a wet but mild winter. Well, the winter's been pretty mild, but it's not been very wet. An atmospheric river did hit the West Coast just tomorrow, today or yesterday, but it totally avoided us, and uh, it hit Washington and Oregon, and essentially what we're seeing now is the very edge of it, which is why the National Weather Service gives us a something like 20% chance of rain today, but, well, maybe, but it's not going to be much. Well, I follow the weather report, of course, every day, and I look at the 10-day weather forecasts as well as the, you know, and, of course, 10-day weather forecasts are not real accurate, but here's what I've seen several times this year is it'll show big rains coming up, you know, like uh, four, five, six days of pretty heavy rain, six, seven eight inches of rain, and it fizzles out. Uh, but what's happening there? Well, a big part of what's happening is we have a La Nina going on in the tropics, and that's everybody's heard of El Nino. That's where the Pacific gets unusually warm. La Nina is the exact opposite. The Pacific gets unusually cold, and that's going to affect which way the winds blow. We've got a ridge right now that's setting up just offshore, and uh, it's you know, a ridge, you can think of it as a pile there. And the storms that would normally come right into California hit that pile, and they're diverted, very often diverted north. January, for the last few years, has not been a particularly wet month, as I recall. Um, so this could turn around. We could get some good rain. Uh, but what's your take on that? Well, unfortunately, they're forecasting this La Nina is going to stick around right into the summer or at least the late spring. And uh, with this ridge setting up, the uh, Climate Prediction Center, which is a part of National Weather Service, and they look out over the next couple of weeks and months, and they are showing they're expecting it to be very, very dry in California. Sad to say. And, of course, that makes the fire situation uh, more critical. Right, right, right. If it weren't for that La Nina and this ridge setting up, you know, we could really hope, maybe we should still hope for a miracle march that happened some years ago where it was dry, 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 and then march, it rained, rained, rained. That'd be really nice, but, um, well, <laughs> I'm not going to put any uh, bad energy into it, so maybe we will have a miracle march. Al, we haven't talked much for a while. Anything else you'd like to talk about today? Well, stuff happening. Really interesting, um, disco- well, yeah, call it discovery on Venus. And, you know, we send probes to Venus and get all of this information back. And then people have to look at it for years and years and years. And they, they're finally able to pick something out of it. And there was a uh, some interesting stuff coming from Venus. I uh, got in touch with the woman who led the team that made the discovery. They found the gas in the Venusian atmosphere at the same level of the atmosphere where there's water. Now, the surface of Venus is over 800 degrees Fahrenheit, so you're not going to find life on the surface. But what if there are life in the clouds? And so she found this uh, gas that, at least on Earth, there's no way it could have been produced without some sort of bacteria. But, you know, maybe there is some way, especially maybe on Venus, there's some way to produce it without the bacteria. But meanwhile, she's looking into that, and I'm just sort of watching, and uh, I'll be talking about that. You and I can talk about that sometime in the near future. Well, okay, let's do that, Al. We can uh, 
We can always find you and I can always find something to talk about. I like that. <laughs> Save your Paul. I enjoy it. Well, Al, uh, then, uh, but the outlook for rain is not too good or snow. Oh, how's the snowpack doing right now? Last I heard, the snowpack was pretty bad. So uh, it's not going to save us. Okay. Well, no good news about the weather, but uh, we can hope for it. Really? We're, this one, you know, this atmospheric river, we were just right on the edge of it, but it gave us some clouds, but not much else. Okay. Al, thank you so much for speaking with KVMR, and we'll talk with you more often. How's that sound? Sounds real good. Let's do it soon, Paul. Thank you. You bet. Next up, we have some excerpts of the speech that Gavin Newsom gave yesterday talking about the current situation with the COVID vaccines and and the current numbers that are showing up as of right now. We're officially at 13.7%. This based upon a seven-day average test, just over 290,000 tests. I should note we had 473,000 tests on Saturday, about 343,000 tests yesterday. So we're seeing, after a little bit of restriction uh, of testing during the holidays, we're starting to see those testing numbers ramp back up rather substantially. As it relates to that 14-day positivity rate, as I noted, uh, we're seeing that fluctuation uh, in the last week or so. But over the last two weeks, you can see we were from over 2.5%, 2.6% positivity to that 13.7% you see today. Now, here's the two slides I wanted to update you with uh, that uh, are important and relevant. You'll see a 6% increase in the total number of hospitalizations over the last 14 days, patients with COVID-19. That's uh, among the smallest increases we've seen over a two-week period in some time. It's just a point of some optimism, a little bit of light, and I'll express uh, why we're not overly enthusiastic about that as it relates to the reality and expectation of the reality that is manifesting and the expectations that we believe will manifest as it relates to the post-holiday bump. But the hospitalization rate, the growth rate at 6% over a two-week period and a 0.3% over a seven-day period, so almost flat new hospitalizations over the last week and 6% increase over the last two weeks, substantially lower rate of growth in terms of new COVID-identified positives into our hospital system. Accordingly, with ICUs, 13% over a two-week period increase, 5% over a seven-day. So 0.3% seven-day increase in hospitalizations, 5% increase in ICUs. So both the hospitals and the ICUs experiencing a rate of increase that is more modest than what we have expressed and we have seen over the course of the last many, many weeks, and for that matter, many, many months. It relates to ICU capacity nonetheless, and this is the point of being sober about this reality. You can look at this capacity. This, again, it does not mean 
No one has access to ICUs. Uh, quite the contrary. It just means we're now in the surge phase of our ICU planning. But you could see, with the exception of the greater Sacramento region, around 10%, and Northern California, which is holding steady at over 30, 35% in this case, that Southern California, San Joaquin Valley, continue to be the hot spots for the state, particularly Southern California, in the San Bernardino Riverside and notably L.A. areas. Uh, Bay Area expressing, obviously, deeper concern around ICU capacity. Again, with the flex plans uh, well established, uh, you could see those numbers beginning to decline in the Bay Area, and that likely will lead, though there's no formal adjudication of the data that's happening, happened over the weekend, uh, Friday being the last day in the Bay Area, the greater Bay Area region, on the stay-at-home. Uh, that those numbers are being crunched, and uh, we should expect Dr. Galley in his update tomorrow uh, to update that determination. But based upon ICU uh, uh, expect or ICU capacity currently, uh, unless those projections are radically different, that we can expect uh, that stay at home to continue. As relates to deaths, we continue to see a substantial number of people losing their lives to this pandemic, averaging 476 individuals over the last seven days. 264 individuals in the last reporting uh, period. So just a sober reminder uh, of the deadliness of this disease, how deadly this pandemic remains. Uh, I noted a few weeks back, um, and it got a little bit of attention, understandably so, these mobile morgues that we uh, sent out across the state. Some suggested perhaps that was overly indulgent, meaning a bit hyperbolic. Now uh, it appears more pressing in the context of preposition of these mobile morgues has been uh, essential in tickle parts of the state that are simply overwhelmed and just don't have capacity. So uh, we continue to monitor that and continue to work with our county partners and our local partners to address uh, those issues as well. As it relates to the issue of staffing the state, uh, we have roughly 1,900 state and federal staff that have been deployed. You can see the myriad of support that we're providing, the most significant now being contract staff. Our emphasis now is on contract staff. I'll talk more about that in a moment. We continue to work with the federal government, Department of Defense, and others, HHS, uh, to request additional resources. That's a top priority and will remain over the course of the next nine, ten days with the current administration and will be among the most essential and uh, top priorities as it relates to the new administration coming in uh, next week. Uh, so 1,878 state and federal staff now deployed across the state of California, a disproportionate number in Southern California. As it relates to the next week or so, in fact, we expect within seven days more LVNs, more RNs, more respiratory specialists, about a 1,000 contract staff will hit the ground. So we're already right now in the process of identifying exactly where they go, uh, but we have a 1,000 uh, members that team that will be deployed, supplementing the close to 2,000 that we've already deployed. So, again, real emphasis, real focus on contract staff now in terms of addressing our staffing need. And I should note, and this is important, we anticipate an equivalent amount in the next few weeks as well. So this is an area where we're starting to see some availability of staff, some loosening of opportunities, again, to bring in not just RNs, but LVNs, 
uh, respiratory specialists, uh, among many other uh, essential workers. Here's an update on those alternative care sites, six that we've included on this slide that are active in Sacramento, Porterville, Fairview, uh, some that uh, you're well familiar with in Southern California and San Diego, as well as Los Angeles. About 117 patients currently are in uh, these, what we refer to often as decompression sites. These are the sites that we stood up. Many others are in warm status. These are the ones we've stood up that will allow us to decompress, take off a little bit of the pressure, the census, the total number of people uh, at the uh, hospital system itself uh, has, to, uh, has to support. As it relates to support, well, we continue to do more to support the needs of getting uh, these vaccines delivered not only uh, to our partners all up and down the state of California, thousands of them, uh, but administered into people's arms. We talk now often about the last mile and the last inch. I'll talk about both here briefly, but you could see a little over 2.4 million, just shy of 2.5 million doses we are uh, in uh, we've received to date and getting close to 800,000 that have been administered, 783,000 administered. This is our last reporting period, uh, and we will be updating this as we do daily uh, with a goal, very explicit goal that we established last week to have an additional. This is additive. This is not just getting to 1 million. This is getting, well, in excess of a million, but one million more vaccines. We had this 10-day goal. We announced it last week, and the goal uh, has a deadline uh, this weekend when dust settles and those, uh, that data comes in. And there's always a day or two lag on the data, so I want folks to be aware of that. We should have all of that information in uh, by this weekend. And the reason we set a goal of one million is that we are sending an urgent call across the spectrum. Our healthcare partners, our legislative partners, as well as labor and business partners up and down the state, this notion of an all-hands-on-deck approach to accelerate uh, the equitable and safe distribution of vaccines. Again, we're not losing sight of the issue of equity. We're not losing sight of the imperative to prioritize the most vulnerable and the most essential. So that's why we talk about our special efforts to vaccinate the vaccinators. Uh, we talk about those long-term settings and those notion of congregate focus, our focus on congregate facilities, residential assisted care facilities. But we now have created, and we've talked about this last week on multiple occasions, I'll repeat today, this expanded pool, the loosening of our tiers or rather phases, and within those phases, the tiers to allow the administration, uh, more smooth administration and more uh, expedited administration of the vaccinations. We've also expanded the pool of those that can administer the vaccines. Uh, I've received a lot of calls, a lot of emails, a lot of texts with people saying, you know, you should really allow uh, nurse midwives the ability to vaccinate. You should allow uh, vocational nurses and psych techs. Well, the reality is we have, and I just wanted to put up here as part of our all hands on deck, uh, uh, the slide that represents the number of categories of individuals and groups that can currently vaccinate. You can see the myriad of different registered nurses, physician assistants, and the like. But we recognize more folks need to have that ability. And that's why you recall a week or so ago, we talked about our efforts on pharmacists and farm techs. 
Last week, at the end of the week, we talked about the work with CDA, our dental association, CMA, uh, and the work we're doing there to get more and more uh, folks, including our dentists, uh, to be able to administer the vaccines. We have 15 National Guard strike teams all up and down the state. People said, well, what about the National Guard? Well, we have deployed the National Guard for some time now. It's just a reminder uh, that they uh, have now been deployed and they're out there working with the Office of Emergency Services, working with clinics and health providers directly. We just now today more socialized. Oh, this happened over the course of the last number of days, but just socializing EMTs and paramedics. We're seeing more and more paramedics partnering with the counties, local health officers uh, are encouraging this, and we are very supportive in EMTs as this local option for additional um, vaccinators to help administer these vaccines faster, uh, again, with an eye on equity, risk, exposure, and with age as the overlay. Using every dose, we don't want to see any dose wastes, and that's wasted, and that's why we created more flexibility. Uh, if there's a dose that's sitting there and there's no one queued up that's in line based upon the existing tiers, we want to be able to move to other priority groups, other priority phases, uh, and tiers within those phases. And so we want to make sure none of these expired, none of these doses go unused. Last night, a judge halted the execution of a Kansas woman who would have become the first female prisoner to die at the hands of the federal government in 68 years. Lisa Montgomery, who had been set to die today at a penitentiary in Terre Haute, could now get a competency hearing. However, the Trump administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to immediately overturn the stay before President-elect Joe Biden, who is against the death penalty, takes office. Montgomery was accused of strangling a pregnant woman and cutting the fetus out of her body in 2004. The baby survived. Montgomery's attorneys want her sentence commuted to life without parole. Jan Vogelsang is a clinical social worker hired by the defense. She says Montgomery suffers from extreme mental illness brought on by many years of torture and rape as a child. It was clear to me that this woman had been a prisoner of war as a child. This was a POW story. Montgomery allegedly was beaten and raped by her stepfather for many years, gang raped and urinated on by his friends, and tormented by her mother before being married off at age 18 to her abusive stepbrother. She has been diagnosed with PTSD, borderline personality disorder, depression, and brain damage. Montgomery's older half-sister Diane Mattingly was sent to live with another family when she was eight years old. She says she expected Montgomery to be sentenced to life in prison. I just completely fell apart because I was like, in my head, this is not going to happen. They're not going to do this. They're going to realize this woman was tortured her whole life, tortured. There is a growing movement in some states to ban the death penalty for people with severe mental illness. Robert Dunham with the Death Penalty Information Center says it was particularly galling to have her execution announced in October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. If you want a symbol of how out of touch with needs domestic violence survivors this administration is and how out of step with contemporary American values this execution is, I don't think anything symbolizes it any better. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. 
Welcome to this edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. There are two types of policy responses a government can implement to address changes in the economy. They are fiscal and monetary. Fiscal policy refers to the taxing and spending of the federal government and includes raising or lowering federal taxes and fees, which is usually implemented by the Internal Revenue Service or other spending implemented by the Treasury Department. Spending programs might include things like improving infrastructure, stimulus programs to both individuals and businesses and governments, and other types of programs the government undertakes with representative permission. Fiscal policies are usually funded by the Treasury Department, a branch of the federal government. Then there's monetary policy. That differs than fiscal policy. Monetary policies is undertaken by the quasi-governmental agency, the Federal Reserve Bank. Monetary policy is direct manipulation of the U.S. dollar as it pertains to certain interest rates, currency creation, funding U.S. Treasury spending, and many other currency programs that exist in today's financial system. Monetary program and policy is accomplished by the Federal Reserve and also includes such things as banking regulations and monitoring, cash requirements and a myriad of other programs and edicts that bend and twist the financial systems of the world. I like to think of the differences between monetary and fiscal as monetary policy is like a river that feeds all the inhabitants that utilize it. Fiscal policy is the inhabitants around the river. Obviously, the river can be more importantly than all the inhabitants around it. Monetary policy keeps the money system lubricated and functioning by making sure the banking industry is sound and in good working order. This means supplying and monitoring the ebb and flow of the cash and the deposits, as well as supplying liquidity at any time to the system. They also set overnight interest rates on funds the banks may need to borrow, and this can have an effect on economies and eventually consumer credit. Much like our river analogy, the system, which is the river, is vastly more critical than the inhabitants, you and me, that utilize it. Sounds harsh, but it is a way of the order of importance is currently viewed, and one could arguably say, correctly so. After all, if some consumers go under, unfortunate as that may be, it would be far more critical should the entire system collapse. Not saying I agree with the morals of it, but the premise is a sound one, financially speaking. The key point in all of this is that monetary policy could be argued to be of a higher priority than fiscal policy. In other words, the river is more important than the people around it, or the system is more important than you and I. It's probably the reason monetary policy, policy addressing the river, the system, is usually not subject to congressional oversight and therefore is usually not delayed like consumer stimulus checks are. Monetary policy is also carried out by the Federal Reserve and they're not subject to much oversight from Congress such as the Treasury Department might be. Fiscal policy, the programs that help the average Joe, like stimulus and unemployment programs, are subject to congressional oversight, and hence the reason they may be delayed in certain cases, and recently, as you and I know, have been. Whether the focus is on monetary or fiscal policy, and how important each one is versus the other, is a subject of debate. The question being, is the system actually more important than the people it serves. Moreover, since much of the financial system, which utilizes those monetary programs, is comprised of the banking industry and large corporate entities, I'll call Wall Street, is it acceptable that these programs that benefit Wall Street, for the most part, remain outside of congressional oversight and encompass literally trillions of more dollars than what flows to Main Street? And that gives you something to think about. 
That's it for today's Money Matters. These opinions expressed here are mine only and do not necessarily represent those of this station its staff, management, or underwriters. Nothing here is meant to ensure a guarantee or be construed as investment advice. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and am a Medicare agent approved. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Food Sleuth and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions and the KVMR News Team, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.